Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, Ministry, Word, and Sacrament. We'll pick up with our discussion on the gospel and doing a little bit, last time we met, on the distinction between law and gospel. So, page 69, question 136. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so just a quick recap and bring us back up to speed. What we encounter as we read the scriptures is that the word repentance is used in two different senses, and the word gospel is used in two different senses. So there's a wide and a narrow, and this helps you as you're reading the text in places where that otherwise might be confusing or confounding. So repentance in the wide sense simply means conversion. And the gospel in the wide sense is a preaching of both the law and the gospel, that is a preaching of repentance and a preaching of the forgiveness of sins. Now if you were to narrow repentance down, that is the first part of conversion, and that's affected by God's law. And if you were to narrow gospel down, what converts the heart and enlivens the heart, quickens it unto faith, that's the gospel. And so you can see a distinction between repentance and the gospel, or law and gospel. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That distinction's evident when we use the narrow definitions of the narrowly defined repentance to feel contrite, sorrowful over one's sins, to be cut to the heart, and then to be absolved by the proclamation of the gospel, to receive the remission of sins on account of Christ. That distinction makes sense? Okay. That fairly well sums up what we've covered thus far on page 68 and the majority of 69. On to question 136. What are the chief parts in which the doctrine of the gospel is comprehended and set forth? Chemnitz answers, the gospel is properly the doctrine of the person and office or benefits of Christ. But this doctrine consists most of all in these chief parts. One, that the Son of God before the world of time was by a wonderful decree made in the hidden council of the Trinity, appointed to be our mediator, redeemer, reconciler, and Savior. Two, that this decree was revealed by the word of promise immediately after the fall, and the promise of the coming Messiah gradually renewed and repeated to the fathers during the whole time of the Old Testament. Three, likewise, that the Son of God, according to the promise, was made man in the fullness of time, and most perfectly completed the work of redemption and reconciliation by his obedience, passion, and death, and thus gained righteousness and life eternal by his resurrection and ascension for those who believe in him. For the gospel does not only set forth the account of Christ in story form, but the proper doctrine of him is the promise of grace, by which God in the word and the sacraments sets before and offers to miserable sinners, thoroughly terrified by the knowledge of sins and of divine wrath and damnation. Grace, remission of sins, adoption, and the inheritance of life eternal freely and out of pure mercy or grace, without our merit, only for the sake of the obedience, passion, death, and merit of Christ." Five, the gospel teaches that these benefits of Christ the mediator are to be apprehended and applied by faith. Six, the gospel declares those who believe righteous and saved. 
All right, so Chemnitz identifies for us six chief parts of the doctrine of the gospel, which, as you can tell, simply center on the person and work of Christ and apply, and that person, the work of Christ, I should say, applied to us to be received in faith. Straightforward? Easy? Any questions? Yeah? Comment? Yeah, they are. They are. You, you want me to just go through real quick and, and clarify, or was there a point or two in particular? Okay, so if you look at 136, just the... Let me see here. Okay, so at 1, the Son of God, before, before the world of time. So, like, you would look at a scripture that says that Christ is crucified before the foundation of the world, that kind of thing. That God foreknew, foresaw Adam and Eve's fall into sin. That, as Augustine points out, and as our confessions affirm, there's a difference between foreknowledge and causation. So God doesn't cause Adam and Eve to sin, but he foreknows their sin. And thus, before the world of time, uh, Christ, the Son of God, our, our Savior, is by a decree um, of the hidden council and trinity appointed to be our mediator. That's the go-between, between God and man. Redeemer, one who, in this case, lays down his life in order to purchase and win us. The reconciler who makes peace between two parties. And our Savior, that's obvious. Okay. So I don't think that that has any like ontological statement about the second person of the Trinity or his origin. That's not how I take that. I see it as in his soteriological office, in his office as Savior. I think that that's what paragraph one's talking to. Okay, so paragraph two is reminding us that the, the first gospel proclamation happens in Genesis chapter three immediately after the fall. Technically speaking, it's made to the devil, the serpent, in earshot of Adam and Eve, that the serpent will bruise his heel, but with that heel, he will crush his head. Which I hope I'm not stating the obvious, but there's this kind of beautiful symmetry in the serpent striking his heel and with his heel crushing his head so that the mutual wounding takes place at the same time, but one is... uh, significantly greater than the other. <laughs> so, Christ, so Christ is struck in the heel, which is, you know, obviously you're, you're going to lay down, and Christ did for three days, but the serpent doesn't recover from having his skull crushed in. Sometimes in uh, artists will depict this in various ways. You'll see a serpent under the cross or even under his feet uh, at the cross. Um, in very rare occasion, I think maybe I've only encountered it once or twice, do you have some kind of image of uh, the serpent like actually biting his heel and then sometimes the nail going through his heel and into the serpent? Just tying in that first gospel promise. So the point being then also that the gospel and faith in Christ have existed since the very beginning. The Christian faith is the oldest faith. It's the only true faith. Everything else spun out of that has some dim reflection of it. And this is the origin. I mean, the world today has it exactly backwards, or at least popular media and academics have it exactly backwards, as if Christianity is a copy of these things. Christianity is older, and there are pagan echoes of that original faith. So you find motifs of a God-man who is a savior. Well, where does that come from? That comes from Adam and Eve. That comes from Noah and his offspring. That comes from these fountainheads of Christianity. And then as the family members fall away from that faith, remnants of it are retained, while otherwise it is twisted and perverted in various ways. Same with the idea of sacrifice and blood atonement. 
Okay, and then let's see, paragraph three. If I'm skipping anything that you want to contemplate, let me know. Yes, please. In what sense? I'm not exactly following. Well, if God calls us to do it, we don't. Mm-hmm. So in one case, he doesn't cause that in you. In another case, he does cause us to think Yeah. <laughs> so there's... So there are, there's apples and oranges, and these are the two states in which we find humanity. So Adam and Eve are created to be good, and they can't accept being good, choose being good. They already are good, right? It's a little bit like if I say the lights are on in this room. You don't have to choose that or accept that. In fact, to even think that way is nonsensical. They're on. The only thing you can do is deny it. So the only thing Adam and Eve can do is fall away. Now, once they've fallen away, then we're talking about a new state in which we ought to contemplate humanity, and that's after the fall, before conversion. And there's no hope. The scriptures say that we're dead in our trespasses. Um, We're enemies of God in that state. That is, our own hearts, our own wills, our own intellects are all oriented against him. And we see that in the world. I mean, if God says A, the world says not A. If God says Y, the world says not Y. It doesn't even, to the world, it doesn't even matter what it is. If it's God and God says it, we're against it. So how then can such a person turn to God? He can't. He has to be turned to God. And so that's, if, if you want uh, dozens, maybe three or four dozen scriptural proofs of this, I can think of no better resource than the book of Concord, the formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 2 on free will, which we just so happen to be reading earlier on Thursdays. Um, that'll give you all the proofs you need there. Does that help clarify in terms of... So they're already fallen away after the fall. Humanity, all of us, we're already fallen away. We can't choose to be fallen away. We already are. It's like as if we turn off the lights, we're just dark. You can't make it light. You can only think you're light, which is exactly a deception of the world. The Pharisees think they're well. The world thinks it's enlightened and light and good. It's not. So we're bad and we have no choice but to be corrupted by sin, bad, fallen, etc. Christ comes and must convert us through his Holy Spirit. Yeah, please. Um, Since the point has been made, or what we're talking about is uh, before the world of time and so forth, Mm. I've often wondered about Romans 8.20 that says, For creation was subjected... to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. Does this have anything to do at all with, you know, creation in itself? And what does, if so, what does uh, being subjected to futility mean? Yeah, um, just broad, I mean, broadly speaking, I think that what Paul has in mind there is he's talking about how the world the cosmos, as it were, is under travail like a woman in labor. So the point being that when God subjected it, subjected the world to futility, that wasn't plan A, that wasn't what he wanted to do, okay? but he subjected it to futility in hope that it would produce, and this is where the the parallel of the woman in labor, in hope that just as once a woman's labor is accomplished, there's the glorious birth of a child and the labor is forgotten. By the time the saga and the futility of the world is over, the hope is that it will bring forth the children of God, the sons of God. And that, 
I won't go down the rabbit hole. I kind of want to go down there. But this is... Um, so apocalypsis is the unveiling. And part, a major part of what the return of Christ and the apocalypse is, is the unveiling of the sons of God. That's us. That means that we will look as we truly are, as saints redeemed by Christ, but then as saints completely and entirely renewed by the Holy Spirit, saints and human beings the way God intended us to be. That's part of the glorious unveiling of what's to come. So we abide in hope, knowing that God has promised this, knowing that God has said, we are not presently who we will be. Not in soul, not in body. But on that day, it will be revealed. So that's why God has subjected it to futility. And I think, I don't think it's an over, it may be an overreading in terms of tight exegesis, but it's not an overreading in terms of the overarching biblical frame. We think of the fall in only negative terms, in only punitive terms. It is negative, it is punitive, but it's more than that. And that is to say that when Adam and Eve, as the heads of our race, choose to fall, God reorders creation with the intention that it be designed to drive man back to God, or at least, I should say, maybe not at least, more precisely, to the need for God to be our Savior. So that's, that's, the idea, that's the idea that in the fall, God recreates the world to pummel the sinful nature so that it's ready to receive the Messiah when God comes. Does that make sense? Or to cling to the promise of the Messiah. I mean, that's why it's futile. It's why, it's why we struggle, I mean, even still with our sinful nature. Like, why does God allow the sinful nature to remain in saints? At least part of it is that that drives us to Christ. That's his, I mean, is it therefore good? No. God takes what is evil and uses it for good. He overcomes evil with good. And that's part of his design. Okay, so long-winded answer, but hopefully that uh, gives some insight there terms of the big picture. Okay, see him. And then we'll get back to your question, Chris, and try to... I haven't forgotten about you. Okay, I have the same kind of question as Janet, but mine came up in section five. And I understand that faith is passive, but... There is a lot of action given to faith here, and I want to apply grace in this. Mm, are, are you by chance on four? The gospel, the gospel does teaches not. that. The benefits of Christ, the mediator. Oh, I see. It is number yeah. five. The gospel teaches that yeah. these benefits of Christ, the mediator, are to be apprehended and applied by faith. Mm-hmm. So what that's, what that's stating is... I think we're going to hit this in depth on page 72. You'll see, the, you'll see the topic of justification. So I'll do a short shrift right now. But justification has these two aspects to it. It has an objective quality and a subjective quality. Yeah, and that's really... So when we're talking about being apprehended and applied by faith, we're talking about the subjective quality. If Christ has died and taken away the sins of the world, then why aren't all men saved? In a sense, they are. That's the objective nature. Their sins are truly paid for. But that must be apprehended by faith, must be received by faith. That's the other side of the coin in the subjective justification. You can look at scriptures. I mean, scripture spells this out. We can go look at Romans, I think it's 4, chapter 4, that Paul literally spells this out. So an objective quality and a subjective quality. And whenever you see that language of apprehended by or received by or uh, applied by faith, that's the subjective. The individual believes the gospel and is saved. Okay. So, okay, that's five. And then we just left off maybe four. The gospel does not only set forth the account of Christ in story form, but the proper doctrine of him is the promise by grace 
So that's already apart from works, according to Paul in Romans 11, by which God in the word and the sacrament sets before and offers two miserable sinners, thoroughly terrified. So you can see what he's doing is echoing what's come before, that the law does its work first to terrify us by the knowledge of our sins and of divine wrath and damnation. And then what God does next is sets before us the word and sacraments that we can know his grace, the remission or forgiveness of our sins, his adoption of us as children, and that adoption. So the adoption language obviously has within it that we're children of another. Whose children are we (laughs) by nature? Sons of disobedience, sons of the devil by nature, born sinful and unclean, and belong to the devil until God comes and possesses us as his own. Language that is in the ancient and present baptismal liturgies. So God claims us as his own and adopts us. And then the inheritance of eternal life, I think, and then is is straightforward, I should say, and then... Freely out of pure mercy or grace without our merit, only for the sake of the obedience, passion, death, and merit of Christ. So that's everything that Christ did is credited to us. That's why it's essential. I mean, he is sinless, but it's one of the major reasons why we need to hold to his sinlessness. is because if he himself isn't righteous, what righteousness is credited to us, what righteousness is applied to us. There is none if Christ is a sinner. So this is the clear teaching of Scripture. Passion Passion is, his, of course, his suffering, his death, merit of Christ, yeah. Okay, I don't know, did we get it? Anything else stand out that I didn't? No, no you answered it. Yeah. Excellent. Thank okay, you. perfect, yeah. yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, are we ready to move on to 137? Yeah. Is the gospel a new doctrine, which first began at the time of Christ and the apostles? By no means. For as there is one faith of the pious, both of the New and of the Old Testament, so notice there is one faith of those under the New Testament and those under the Old Testament, but we share the one faith. So also is it one and the same gospel of both people, those of the Old as well as those of the New Testament. And scripture reference is given there for you to look it up if you like. For the doctrine of the gospel was revealed by God immediately after the fall, and thereafter gradually repeated during the whole time of the Old Testament, and not less than in the New Testament. So I, I, I would emphasize that point because, again, I think culturally we're just unaware of this. It's gradually repeated during the whole time of the Old Testament, not less than in the New Testament. Sometimes people have this idea like, well, the Old Testament is most, mostly the Ten Commandments and a wrathful, angry God and sins, and the New Testament is Jesus in Birkenstocks and a flowing white robe, gorgeous blue eyes, forgiving everyone and loving everyone and handing out puppies. That's a complete distortion of the scriptures. The gospel is every bit as at the center in the Old Testament as it is in the New. And God doesn't change from one testament to another. The Old Testament, that system and form, gives way to a greater system and form, that that we know in the New Testament church. But that essential teaching of righteousness in the Messiah is at the heart of the Old and New Testament. Even when you think of the sacrificial system, the whole heart of that is the atonement and the forgiveness of sins. That's at the very center of what would be the Old Testament proper. Okay, so just picking back up then, for the doctrine of the gospel was revealed by God immediately after the fall and thereafter gradually repeated during the whole time of the Old Testament, not less than in the New Testament. There is only this difference, that in the Old Testament it was the promise of the Messiah to come, who was to be a sacrifice for us. But in the New Testament it is truly gospel, that is, the joyful tidings of the Messiah who has been sent, 
and who has completed the work of redemption. So to oversimplify and maybe distort just a tiny bit, they had faith in the one who is to come, who is to come from their perspective. We have faith in the one who came. They had a future-looking faith. We have a backward-looking faith. It's an oversimplification because they had Christ with them, even as we have Christ with us. And so it's a continual looking to Christ present tense. Chemnitz continues, there is also a difference in the mode of revelation, which was more obscure in the Old Testament, but is clearer and brighter in the New. But just as we in the New Testament are justified and saved by faith in Christ, who is now revealed, so the fathers in the Old Testament were justified and saved by faith in Christ, who was to come. So the only hope of the Hebrew people or the Jewish people, whatever you want to call them as time progresses along, Their only hope is in Christ. And there's no other hope, there's no other covenant, there's no other salvation for the Hebrews, the Jews, Israelites, whatever you want to call them, whatever they are in any given time or place. There's no hope for them outside of Christ. So that is the idea that there's some hope for them outside of Christ is a dispensationalist idea that comes about probably in the 19th century. At least that's when it seems to be popularized. But it's alien to the scriptures. Okay, so far so good? Yeah, please. How would you explain when Jesus is talking about the, the Holy Spirit coming, he's sending the comforter. It was in the same way as it was in before, but it, did it stop when Jesus was here during this time of ministry? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm I looking hope, at it wrong. Can you, can you say it one more time? I, I think I know the answer, but I don't want to say it until... <laughs> okay, your when Jesus goes and says, the, I'm sending you the comforter. Yeah. And so he, he's saying, hey, it, it's almost like it's not here yet. But I know it is because he's already... But was it stopped during his ministry or was it not as prevalent because he was here? Because he says, when I, I, when I leave... It will, I will send you the comforter. Mm-hmm. But the Holy Spirit was here in the Old Testament as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, David prays, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament and active in the New. But he's poured out upon the New Testament church in a way that is... So the, one of the easiest ways to understand the move from the Old Testament to the New is more. More, a superabundance. So the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament resides chiefly with his people and with Gentiles that are called in and with other peoples. And again, this is something we're wont to miss, but even as the people exit Egypt, a bunch of the pagans exit with them and are converted to Yahweh on account of the plagues and his salvation of his people through the blood of the Lamb. So there are there are. Gentiles who are saved and incorporated into Israel throughout her history. So the Holy Spirit is active, but not in such a way what what you see at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. You not only see a personal transformation that's quite unlike, quite more extreme than than most of the others. So not only are they are the apostles like converted, so to speak but they suddenly know languages they didn't previously know. They go from timid to bold. They go from really kind of bumbling to the authors of Scripture. I mean, this kind of transformation is very radical. And then what you see is instead of the nations locally being brought into Israel or locally saved, you see the church all of a sudden explode outward and become a global phenomenon, detached from a from a nation state as its hub or as its core. So that's, that's a difference, a distinction. Was the Holy Spirit present and working in the Old Testament? Yes. Is he, is he present and working in the New Testament? Yes. But there's a distinction between the old and the new in that he comes all the more and all the more fully. And that's just manifest in all kinds of different ways, including Christianity becoming a global phenomenon. There's probably not a person on the face of the earth that doesn't 
know the basic tenets of Christianity, the basic idea that the Son of God came to die to make atonement for people. Yeah, please. I've heard it said that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, and in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells. Is that uh, accurate? I wouldn't pay any attention to that. Okay. No. No, I really wouldn't. The scriptures are never that precise. Yeah. Yeah. The Holy Spirit indwells his people. I mean, there's a parallel even in this. We pray that God would send his Holy Spirit upon us. We pray that God would grant us his Holy Spirit. Did we not have it before? Yes, we had him before. (laughs) And we pray that we would have him all the more. We pray that we would have him this day all the more. And the next day all the more. And so on and so forth. So the easiest way, I think, to just wrap your head around this, this shift from Old to New Testament in a very simple way is there's continuity the difference is the New Testament is more everything, better everything. Please. All right, I can think of one incident where that where the Holy Spirit may have is when there was a set of a people of uh, of the Jew sect that believed in their law, but they were not aware of the baptism of Christ. So Paul administered to them, and then at that time, they received the Holy Spirit. Do you know that section of Acts? Yeah, yeah. But what does receive the Holy Spirit mean in Acts? So you want to pay really close attention to how Luke is using the language. Because in some cases, it's conversion. But in other cases, it's the charismatic signs that are apparent in the first century. So you have, so, I mean, this, this particular thing aside, if you trace through the book of Acts, you'll see that they have been baptized with a valid baptism in some cases. I think this is Acts 8, but I'd have to go back and look. But it's not until hands are laid upon them that they receive the first century New Testament gifts of speaking in tongues and this kind of thing. So Luke will sometimes use that language as receiving the Holy Spirit. But did they have the Holy Spirit before? Yes, they just hadn't received these charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. So then when you get over to, I forget what it, what it is, do you remember, is it Acts 16 or 18, something like that, where Paul encounters these disciples who say they're disciples of John right. and that they've been baptized, but it turns out they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. Right. And that, that poses a particular question. And so, again, you want to view Acts through this lens. It's a handbook of the church and what to do in certain circumstances. So what Paul does in a circumstance where he finds people who claim to be disciples of Jesus, and, you know, John, but Christians, they, they claim um, to have been baptized, but they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. John, or Paul looks at that and makes a pastoral call and goes, we're going to baptize you, not rebaptize you, baptize you, because whatever baptism you had, whatever instruction in the faith you've had, it's not adequate. It doesn't meet the standard. So we're going to baptize you and instruct you. And of course, that baptism is a baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So hopefully, that, hopefully those two points clarify. Hopefully it clarifies what's going on in that particular passage But then the second point that I began with, the point that pay attention to how Luke uses that language of receive the Holy Spirit, because you'll see it be um, referred to in terms of conversion, but then also in the secondary sense of, no, you're converted, you're baptized, you don't need to be rebaptized, you have the Holy Spirit, but you haven't received his gifts. And that sometimes is used for shorthand, receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that helps. And probably nowadays, you will never find a group of people in that category where I believe in Jesus, but we, don't, we didn't know about his Holy Spirit. You, you will not find that today, correct? No, I think, I think like um, what you might find, so, so let me give you a plausible scenario, is so what if you had sort of 
Christmas and Easter Mormons. <laughs> yes, we're baptized. Yes, we believe in Jesus. Uh, and then you say, oh, so you believe that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they say, no, we've never heard anything like that. But they claim to have a baptism. They claim to be Christian. What do you do? And the answer from, yeah, I mean, this is where Acts functions as a kind of pastoral care manual. You go to Acts and you see where Paul encountered something very similar to this, and it's very simple. You baptize them, right? You recognize that the, that the baptism itself is not valid, and their catechesis is so woefully ignorant as to not have been a true catechesis, so you start fresh, just baptize and catechize. Okay, so far so good. So then, I think that we left off, did we not, at, uh, did we get through 137? Yeah, difference in the mode of revelation. Yeah, okay. 138. Is the law destroyed or abolished by the gospel? <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm laughing because so many Lutherans would answer yes, but look at what Chemnitz says, God forbid, God forbid says Paul, Romans 3.31, but by the doctrine of the gospel or faith, the law is rather established, see also Matthew 5.17, all right, so we've already been here with Chemnitz, in what ways is the law abrogated? Well, its condemnation is abrogated for those who are in Christ Jesus. So also, the need to justify oneself by means of the law is abrogated because Christ is our righteousness. But aside from those two senses in which it's abrogated, the law is rather established by the gospel. It's established not only in the first place as that which leads us perpetually to Christ and directs us perpetually to our need for, the, for our Savior. Of course, properly speaking, the gospel is the proclamation of that Savior, the forgiveness of our sins. But then in a second sense, the gospel, or, yeah, the gospel establishes the law because the law then is set forth for us as what is pleasing to our Father. Not that we're justified by it, but simply as, well, what do we do now? <laughs> well, here's what's pleasing to God. And, of course, renewed by the Holy Spirit, we begin to fulfill the law, however weakly and fitfully uh, in this life. We do begin to fulfill it. We begin to love God. We have affections in our hearts that, aren't, that weren't there previously. Right? And is that love perfect? Not even close. Is that love steadfast? Hardly. The love is fitful, and it's up and down, and it follows its course of life, and sometimes in a season of life, it's perpetually volatile. It's a perpetual struggle. Other times, it's easier. But there's something there, and that something there is the difference between light and darkness. So it's, it's on the one hand, it's funny because it's not much, right? But on the other hand, it's the difference between light and darkness, zero and one, life and death. And so even though it's a, from, from a given angle or perspective, a minuscule difference, it's an all-important difference. It's a huge and vast difference. Okay, so the law is established, not abrogated. And then I think in 139, we'll get a little bit more on this theme. So lengthy question slash statement here at 139. But the law and the gospel appear to teach complete opposites. And I really appreciate the way that that's worded, because insofar as they do, it's an appearance, not a reality. So, But the law and the gospel appear to teach complete opposites, for the law sets an angry and offended God before sinners, but the gospel presents him gracious and merciful. The law threatens sinners with punishment and eternal damnation, the gospel offers them remission of sins and life eternal. The law promises mercy, life, and salvation, but with the condition of fulfilling the law. 
But the gospel promises those good things freely without our works. These things truly appear, again, notice appear, to be so contradictory that they mutually nullify and destroy themselves. Well, and you can see where that's out of balance, like, as if there's this division within God himself, as if God's conflicted and just doesn't know whether to save you or damn you. (laughs) Okay, let's hear what Chemnitz says, and then I can add my commentary if necessary. This antithesis is to be carefully weighed and correctly stated on the basis of true foundations. For the true and sound understanding of the whole doctrine of the gospel depends chiefly on this basis. And those profane and epicurean fancies are to be completely taken away out of the hearts of men that God in the law only acts as if he was angered by sins. All right, so we remember what is meant by Epicurean fancies. That's sort of the pleasure-seeking, eat, drink, and be merry. And when this gets adopted in the umbrella of Christianity, it's kind of an antinomianism or libertinism. It's this idea of like, well, God delights in forgiving sins? Fantastic. I delight in sinning. (laughs) So should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, but the profane and Epicureans say, by all means. In fact, you're not going to know the true depths of the gospel unless you plumb the true depths of sin. So go pursue a dark night of the soul so that you can perceive all the more the light of Christ. And of course, you hear pastors who have fallen into great sins and wish to be reinstated into an office use this theology in an extremely manipulative way. I mean, once you understand the script, you you can hardly keep from like, involuntarily vomiting in your mouth when you hear the theology. Um, Because then if you don't reinstate them, you're not filled with the gospel, nor do you understand the grace of God. Uh, You can see how this just manipulation, plain and simple, and using the gospel to manipulate. So, Chemnitz will set us free from all this nonsense by directing us to the scriptures, to God's own word. So, those profane and Epicurean fancies are to be completely taken away out of the hearts of men that God in the law only acts as if he is angered by sins, but that in the gospel with that statement of his mind and with his will changed, he thus nullifies and destroys the law. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is just could not be more apropos for Lutherans to pay attention to today because it's exactly what this camp says. Kenneth continues that the statement of the law concerning sin is now taken away and made invalid by the revealed gospel. So notice that, that the statement of the law concerning sin is taken away and made invalid by, and revealed by the gospel. So then Christian freedom means that you can do whatever you want because the law has been abrogated by the gospel. So you are free to do literally whatever you want. That is not the gospel. That is not biblical. That is not Lutheran. Unfortunately, that is being portrayed as if it were. In fact, portrayed as if it were the genuine Lutheranism. Wildly absurd. And ironic, because this is what Rome in the 16th century accused Lutherans of teaching. (laughs) And so Lutherans everywhere said, no, we reject this. Outright, we don't teach this. This is not freedom. This is not the gospel freedom. And now, ironically, we've got Lutherans who think that it's the height and epitome of of historic Lutheranism to be exactly that caricature which Rome made. Oh, well. All right, sorry, I'm kind of butchering this with my commentary. It's a long sentence anyway. I think we're on line seven or eight of this one sentence. So let's just pick up midstream. And that this is the position of the gospel, colon. God is now neither concerned about sin, nor hates, nor abominates it, but loves and approves it. Notice how that ties in with the lawlessness of our age. And is so delighted by it that he wants to give the ungodly eternal life because of sins. It's the idea of like, you know, take Luther's term and misuse it. Go sin boldly because God loves sinners. It's another way that that's 
formulated. So, I mean, yeah, real world example. I mean, I've had people say to me, like, like, no, of course I'm going to go do this sin. I don't really care what you say because the gospel, because that's law, and you're a you're a <laughs> I won't use the exact slur. Um, you're a you're a legalist for asserting the law. I've been set free in the gospel. To which you respond, free to sin, free to do whatever I want. D- don't you acknowledge that that's a sin? Yes, I acknowledge it's sin, and I confess it, and I'm forgiven. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> wild, wild stuff. Yeah, uh, comment in the back. Excuse me. I think something that I hear a lot is this idea that uh, in order to be authentic, uh, you have to sin because you you don't even know, right? You just you you're not you're not a broad uh, you know worldly person. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, you don't have to fall into a pile of horse manure to know that it's not a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that whole argument that you, you don't know what you're talking about unless you've tried it is uh, demonic, to say the least, and just foolish. I mean, I don't know, foolish. So I, this, is, this is real stuff. I can't even believe it, but it's real, and it's infected a lot of Lutheranism, uh, it's, it's thoroughly affected and been institutionalized in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. I mean, this is their theology. This is, do you want to know how you get to women pastors, homosexual pastors, open ce- celebration of uh, sodomy and fornication and immorality and wickedness of every kind? You get to it within Lutheranism by doing the exact opposite of what Chemnitz is saying here. You get there by saying the gospel and the law are contradictory, the gospel destroys the law. What is it that you want to do? Well, I want to sin, and it's contrary to the law. Okay, watch this. Here comes the gospel wrecking ball. It's removed the law. Go do as you will. That's gospel freedom. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a legalist or is reformed or doesn't get grace, or isn't a true Lutheran, or doesn't know or understand Luther or St. Paul, etc., etc. Trust me, I've heard it all. Um, But I hope you can see here through a 500-year-old document by one of the great Lutheran fathers how alien this is to true Christianity and true Lutheranism. All right. Picking back up where we left off then, after that really lengthy sentence... Chemnitz writes, for such opinions are not only false and ungodly, but also blasphemous. For the divine law is and remains the serious, eternal, and unchangeable will of God. Notice the language, especially of eternal and unchangeable. The law isn't arbitrary. That's the other thing that these groups tend to do, is that the law is just this arbitrary set of like, oh, you shall not, and the wagging finger of the law, and it's just like this, it's presented as this nanny caricature and arbitrary and capricious. It's not. It's a reflection of who God himself is. Thus, it's, his, it's identical to his unchangeable will. That's what Chemnitz says. And therefore, it's also eternal. That's what Chemnitz says. And he says this because this is what the scriptures themselves teach. So the divine law is and remains serious, eternal, and unchangeable will of God, which the gospel by no means either nullifies or destroys, but rather confirms and establishes so that the rule might remain firm and unchangeable. Unless the law of God is kept with full and perfect obedience, God neither can nor wants to be merciful to any sinner. All right, and then... Let's, uh, 140 continues, so let's just go. But that kind of fulfillment or satisfaction is impossible for us. How then shall we obtain either righteousness or salvation? Great question. Chemnitz answers, As far as we are concerned, we, could, we would absolutely have to perish in eternal damnation. For if the divine law is not fulfilled, 
it can in no way be abolished or taken away. And for us, its fulfillment is impossible. Therefore, God, in his secret counsel regarding the restoration of the welfare of mankind, planned and determined and made a decree to send his Son into the flesh, who was not to abolish or destroy the law, so that fulfillment would no longer be necessary for us, but who, made under the law and subject to it, would in our place perfectly render and discharge his fulfillment and satisfaction for our sins, indeed required of us by the unchangeable judgment of God, but impossible for us, and thus, since the law would painfully, or excuse me, plainly, it would also painfully, but it's not what it says, would plainly be fulfilled for us, merit and obtain this, that because of his obedience and satisfaction, God would deign to be merciful and compassionate toward penitent sinners. And in this way, the gospel does not abolish or destroy the law, but points out and testifies that Christ has fulfilled the law for us by completely perfect fulfillment. Romans 8, 3 through 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Isaiah 53, 6, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, all given as references. So there's a very popular Lutheran uh, theologian by the name of Stephen Paulson. He's an ELCA theologian. Um, unfortunately, he's being asked to write, and he's being promoted within the LCMS for whatever reason. I don't know, because the man's an utter heretic. He says that Christ committed his own sin on the cross. He, said that Christ, he says that Christ's death on the cross does not atone for your sins. And he says that the law has no place in the life of a Christian whatsoever. He dismisses this whole idea that Christ would be born under the law in order to fulfill it, to be the righteousness of God credited to us. He says that this whole thing is wrong and is, quote-unquote, the legal scheme. And he intends to toss the entire legal scheme out and present us with his own gospel of a Christ who does not die for you and who is, in fact, himself a sinner. It's being promoted far and wide in the LCMS and in other church bodies and far and wide um, amongst certain auxiliary groups, uh, parachurch organizations. So you need to be aware of this and you need to mark and avoid because it can't get more plainly heretical than that. And again, I hope you can see that because it's not like the opinion of Rhodey um, or the opinion of a, a few disgruntled pastors here and there. This is the teaching of the Lutheran Church that goes all the way back to her founders and, as you can see, is based on not obscure scriptures, but Romans, Galatians, the heart of the doctrine of law and gospel. So, yes, I see a hand in the back. I wonder if Paulson's... um phrase there, the, or the, his idea of the legal scheme is similar to another idea that it seems is out there, which is a mockery of um, accepting Christ or thinking of Christ as one Savior. Um, it's, uh, the phrase is uh, fire insurance. Have you heard that? Mm, I've heard it, yeah. This idea, I guess, then that um, the law is, you know, will condemn you, and therefore you need a Savior, and that's kind of like I don't know how many people have heard this, but it's like it's mocked. Like, oh, God wouldn't wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's you're just kind of like an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know, in order to uh, achieve non-idiot status, you need to follow me and whatever mm-hmm. I'm going to replace it with. Is, you think that's similar though? The fire insurance and the legal scheme. As as a, I, don't, I don't know that those I, in my mind those two thoughts would be hard to integrate. I don't so I don't know. I just have to say, I don't know. Maybe I could talk to you more about it after the class. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, another formulation, I want to be clear, this isn't, this isn't anything I've ever read or heard from Paulson. Um, I don't follow him very closely because it's just how much can you take. Uh, but another, f- a tangential formulation that you, you may hear from time to time 
is this idea that God poured all of his wrath out on Christ, therefore he has none left for you. It just makes no sense. And the implication of that is if God poured out all his wrath on Christ once and for all, then what's he going to come, what's he going to return with? What's the final judgment going to be? A wrathless judgment. (laughs) I mean, that's the implication of such a statement. It's patently ridiculous. What God does is pours out the full wrath against sin on Christ. And it's, you can think of this as like a burned over zone, okay? It's like, it's like that's the place where the lightning has struck and the fire is burnt. So if you are in Christ, then there's no more fire. There's no more wrath. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the forest can't burn. <laughs> the rest of the forest is ripe for burning, and God has plenty of wrath left over for those who reject Christ, those who are outside of Christ. That's a far more accurate way of our... T- so it's not like, oh, God's wrath is spent and now it's just sunshine and butterflies and he's skipping around heaven. That's, I, I mean, I don't know where you get that. You get that by sitting around thinking too much instead of reading the scriptures. Because the scriptures everywhere warn that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be now. As it was in the days of Lot, so it will be now. That is disaster and wrath on an unspeakable level, are going to come. See, if you lose this aspect of your theology too, then law and gospel are just mind games. Then it's just, hey, you're, you're naughty, first part of the sermon, second part of the sermon, but Jesus loves you, you're forgiven. And then that's it. When Christ talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, it's a conviction of sin, a conviction of righteousness, and a conviction of judgment. That's that the ruler of this world is cast down and that God's wrath is upon him and upon all who follow him. And so the plea of the gospel is directly analogous to that plea of Noah who is preaching to everyone that the flood is coming and your destruction is here. And that's exactly how we ought to be preaching and teaching to our neighbors. It's not a flood of water that's coming. It's a flood of fire And it's not some penultimate outpouring of God's wrath and justice. It's the ultimate one. It's it's the big one. It's the one after which there will be no other. If you would be spared from that, then come into the one place where the lightning is already struck, where the fire is already burned, where the wrath has already been poured out, in this one safe zone in Christ, you can be saved from the wrath that is to come. That's, I mean, that is the biblical gospel. That is the biblical gospel in the wide sense. But that is the biblical teaching of where we're at in the cosmos and how you can see that God is wrathful, but not for, toward those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's just a way of, I mean, all I'm really trying to do is articulate what Chemnitz has said and what the scriptures have said in that vein. Make sense? All right. Ooh, well, did we get through all this? Did we get through all of 140? I think we did. Okay, so 141, let's just do it real quick. But someone may object. What good does it do me that another has fulfilled the law since the law makes its demands on me? And how can the satisfaction of one be enough and sufficient for all? Chemnitz answers, Christ was made subject to the law, was made sin and a curse, not because of himself, but for us. And that by the decree and good pleasure of the will of God for our redemption... And since this person is not only man, but God and man, that redemption is therefore so ample and great that it is sufficient propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Since Christ accomplished it in the flesh, it provides us highest and sweetest comfort. All right, and there are scripture references interspersed throughout, so I commend those to you. But this is the essential element that Christ is 
God and man, and thus as man, he can truly bear the sins of man and be our representative. And because he is God, what he accomplishes in his flesh, what he suffers in his flesh, can be credited universally to all of us. So the scriptures in the book of Acts refer to the blood of Jesus as the blood of God. And it's that blood that cleanses man's sins. Can the blood of an infinite God cleanse finite humanity, even with all its billions upon billions of members? Yes. The blood of the infinite God can cleanse finite man. Piece of cake. That's the way I would make the biblical argument on the basis of that blood of God. And of course, I mean, Paul makes the argument more thoroughly in Romans, but that's a shorthand, short-form way of getting there. Okay, I think that's all the time we have. So next week, pick up at 1.42. God willing, we'll finish out the gospel and then be on to the section on justification, faith. I mean, if you thumb forward, we've got some really interesting, really cool and thought-provoking things coming up. We're going to hit predestination. I'm going to spend a lot of time on predestination. My goodness. I'm going to talk about good works and new obedience. I'm going to do the whole thing. The Lord be with you.